sport administrators, sport fans and participants themselves. Sarah and Ash sit down with a bunch of inspiring female leaders from within the sports industry who share their journey of achieving their aspirations. When we think of inspiring women in Australian sport, today's guest is definitely one of the first that come to mind. Shiloh Curtis is the current National Female Participation Manager for Golf Australia and is leading the implementation of Vision 2025, Golf Australia's long-term strategy to enhance the engagement of women and girls in golf. Prior to this, Shiloh spent the best part of a decade leading the development of women's Aussie rules football, wildly known as one of the catalysts for Australia's first ever national women's professional competition, the AFLW, through her role as AFL Victoria's Female Football Development Manager. With a passion for cultural change and gender equality, Shiloh also spends her time presenting to Department of Defence leadership programs. We are so excited to chat to Shiloh today. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me along. Thank you. It's been so good so far, so it's great to have you on. Yeah, we're very, very excited to have you on and we'll get started with our first question that we ask everyone on here because it's our favourite thing to hear, which is what was your earliest memory in sport? Oh, I think the Russian Olympics, the Moscow Olympics, 1980. I think I'm probably showing my age there. There was a song that was very popular at the time and it was it was Moscow. The song was called Moscow and there was a cool kind of Russian dance and so that was very popular. Yeah, I just have a really strong memory of the Russian Olympics, the Moscow Olympics. And then after that, it was 1982, the Commonwealth Games were held in Brisbane and Raylene Boyle and Glynis Nunn, I think, both ran there. And I was in primary school at that point, so 82, I was in grade one. And I remember I was still in school in Brunswick and I just remember I just couldn't wait for school to be over and I just raced home from school with my mum. She had my brother in a pram and we just raced home because I just couldn't wait to get in front of the TV to watch these, to watch athletics. I was really taken by athletics and I really wanted to watch these women run and it just excited me so much. Yeah. And did they, I guess, inspire you to do any athletics yourself? Was that your first, I guess, crack at sport? No, Australian football was always my first crack at sport. My grand bought me, my nan, she bought me a, a 99, they used to have these kind of plastic footballs that were brown and they just, I don't even know, I don't even know how it was a football, but it was just basically an empty ball of nothing and a hard plastic shell that if you bounced it, it would just, you couldn't hand pass it, it would hurt your hands, but that cost 99 cents from Coles and New World. And I remember my nan bought me one and I think I hand, tried to hand pass to the dog and I think the dog bit it and flattened it and it was no good after that. But, yeah, Australian football was always always called me. You know, cricket and football were always on the TV at home. But I think those big multi-sport events, Olympic Games, I just loved them as a kid, Commonwealth Games, just where you got to see everything over the space of two weeks and have such exposure. And it wasn't until much later on in life that I realised why I love Com Games and the big games so much, is that for girls growing up, it was the only time you got to see the best women in Australia, in the world, celebrated on free-to-air on mainstream TV, mainstream society, you know, the newspapers and magazines, TV, news, news items. Yeah, if the Com Games and the Big Games went on, there was nothing else. You wouldn't, there was no other way to see amazing athletes doing their thing. Even netball wasn't a thing and wasn't really reported on. So sports news was never female unless it was the Olympic Games and Com Games time, and it was amazing. Yeah, that's a really good point. I've never thought of it that way. But, yeah, you're right, looking back as a kid, that was when, when you got to see the elite females on sports was those those major ones. And probably brings us to another 
massive event that you were such a big part of, which was the first AFLW game, which um, you had a massive part in driving the national competition and been involved in women's football long before that. That game, I do remember going to that game. I wasn't actually going to go. And then the build-up in Melbourne on the day, you just felt like something amazing was going to happen. Like I was planning on going to a few other games over the weekend, but then, you know, sat there with some friends as that sort of day went on and went, I think I think we need to go to this. Like I think we're going to miss out on something if we don't go. And then when we got there, we were just amazed and in awe like everyone was in terms of the atmosphere and, you know, um, how much people – got behind it but I guess that's probably what you're expecting can you tell us a little bit about how that day went for you and how you felt yeah it was pretty special wasn't it um I had just been over in the U.S. for uh the inauguration of Donald Trump and uh, and also the women's march I did book my ticket prior to the U.S. election um be a, a different a different day but uh yeah it was an amazing contrast going from the, the inauguration which was very empty to the Women's March the next day where you, you just couldn't move. It was chock-a-block full. And it was a pretty stressful time because the immigration ban had started to be implemented there. It was very tense. And I had to fly in and out of the States. My dad, um, whilst he's he's not a very practising Muslim, he, he eats too much bacon and drinks too much beer to really be that practising. But, you know, having a Turkish heritage, Muslim background on my dad's side, I was a little bit concerned because I'd fly into Canada and then fly back into the US to come home. And I, even then I was a bit, oh, I don't know what's going to happen here. So it was really stressful and I didn't know what I was going to be greeted with at immigration and things like that. So going from that to then flying into Melbourne on the Thursday and then the game was the Friday night and I had to call that. I went to a bar, I think, to catch up with some friends pre-game at, in Sydney Road in Brunswick and then sort of I, I lived me there and, and then walked down and hit the corner of the northern corner of Princess Park and, and it was a beautiful night. It was sort of 28-degree day and the, the sky was magnificent. It was purple and blue and pink and orange and yellow and, you know, the grass was amazing and it just ever and then just just people everywhere and just so many smiles. Everyone was so happy and it was almost like Christmas Day and, you know, kids bouncing footies and people wearing scarves in summer and then sort of walking through the park and just being just I was just so overjoyed with the fact that we'd finally gotten there, that this game was going to happen, that we were starting this thing and, you know, all the blood, sweat and tears and, and isolation and, and the challenges and, and the exhaustion was worth it. And as we sort of ended up closer to the park, you know, sort of the tram streaming up from Royal, up Royal Parade and they were full and people were spilling out of these trams and and friends calling and texting going, I can't find a car park, I'm driving around around in circles, I'm going to be late. That you was know. me. And, yeah. <laughs> I had a friend who missed out and, and she ended up just heading, heading to a local park, a local pub to watch the game and just so many, I've, there were so many stories that I've heard from people on that day but you know, it was just so joyful, you know, just such a, a contrast to what I'd been experiencing in the US. And and it was a real sense of community and, and people coming together and we all fought for this thing so hard. And, you know, I played, I played my role, but so many people did play a role in, in crafting that. And whether it was a mother who drove her daughter to the local footy club and empowered that daughter to play football or whether it was you know, Monique Conti's mom or Isabel Huntington's dad driving them up and down the highway to, to put them in our high performance program. They played a role. Everyone did. And that's what I really loved about that night. And it was everyone who played their role was able to just stop and celebrate what we collectively did together. And everyone's role was just as important as the next person. And it really struck a chord for me comparing that to what I just experienced in the US, this 
what community is about and what we can achieve when we work collaboratively and we work collectively together and the happiness and joy that we all felt that night. And it was just so different to, you know, what I'd experienced in the US. So, yeah, if I, if I was a, an artist, I could probably paint it very clearly, yeah. but I'm not and I wish I could. But it was just so laid and, and just amazing and, and I'll, I'll happily talk about that night anytime to anyone because even just sitting here now, I just my body's filled with, yeah, the emotion of that night. It's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, for someone that went, my motivation to go, you know, we knew there was going to be a football game, but I went when I told my um, family who don't live in Melbourne that I want to be able to in it would 20, 50 years time tell my kids and my grandkids that I was there when this monumental moment happened. Like this was bigger than just a football game that I'm proud to be there. I'm a Collingwood supporter, you know, when Collingwood were the first ever game of AFLW. And so that kind of proves how it's bigger than football. It's for the whole of kind of society and women are just so proud now to go and support the but not only the national but the local competitions as well. Yeah, yeah, it's a yeah, it was I think there are a lot of people who 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 really got a sense that history was being made that night and many people did go along for that reason and uh and I do feel for the people that were locked out but everyone's kind of got a story about everyone knows where they were that night. Oh, I didn't go, I decided to stay at home or or something like even even earlier this year um, the ABC you know, did a piece sort of 5 years on and and wanted to find a young player that was now playing in the AFLW that went to that game and so many of the girls were like oh I had rep basketball on that night I was spewing and I couldn't go. <laughs> What? We built this thing and you weren't there? Like, what were you thinking, you know? But, yeah, I mean, Elle Elle Nicholson did this beautiful piece with um, Olivia Vesley and it's really well worth a listen. You know, she's obviously playing for St Kilda now and didn't get to play this year. She's had had an injury, a calf injury. But, you know, that kid came out of a a talent search that we ran once – Gill announced the AFLW would run. We're like, geez, we need some more talent because you've you pulled the trigger three years too early. Thanks, mate. And we found her and Eleanor Brown that day and the, the Hosking twins came out of that that trial as well. And, yeah, and so Liv Vesley, had, she'd sort of given up her AFL dream and and then ended up coming into this talent search day and, and I saw her and we thought she and Wayne, Wayne Sequin and I saw her and thought she was a cracker and wanted to invite her into the Vic Metro squad for training and trial with the group as we were preparing for the Nationals. And I called her over and I said, oh, Liv, you know, why don't you – I said, we want to have a chat. And I said, really happy, love what you do. We'd love to invite you to Vic Metro trials. And she looked up at her dad and I clear as day, she looked at her dad and you could see her dad's face was just like, oh. Not another sport. (laughs) (laughs) And her face was pleading, the poor kid, you know, those big puppy dog eyes. But what, Dad? And then, and he went, oh, okay. She was like, okay. And she's a a beautiful person, just so, just lives the joy of life, you know. Her face just lit up. And anyway, it was like, gave her all the details and said, great, see you Tuesday night or whenever it was. And and off she walked and Wayne and I were like, yes, you know, we're like, because we knew she was going to be something. And at that moment, we both looked up and we saw Olive and her dad walk off together. We, just, we saw the back of them. And then he just put his arm around her and squeezed her into him and just like, that's my girl. Like, just proud of you. know, there was that moment of like, yeah, she's going to have a crack at footy. And he was just, he was just so overjoyed with her. So she, yeah, she, she went to that game. She knew exactly where she was and her description was quite wonderful. But yeah, I think everyone's got a story about about that night and and that gives you an indication of the historical significance of that game in in the Australian sporting history. 
it's obviously been a really long journey that I don't think everyone would be aware of to get that national comp up and running. And you were such a massive part of it. I think people sometimes, you know, advocate for it and things like that, that word around a little bit, but that doesn't give justice to the amount of work that yourself and a lot of others put in since probably the early 2000s and even before that. Can you maybe talk to us a little bit about the process that you went through to actually get this National League up and running and get, and get the attention that it deserved? Like I know you mentioned there that it got brought forward, was it three or five years compared to what you had already planned? So, you know, there was plenty of work going on in the background for quite a long time. Yeah, and I, and look, I certainly don't. There are certainly many people that went before me, many women before me, and I think about Helen Lambert and, and the women that got the, the Victorian Women's Football League started in 1981. There were women in the 70s in Victoria. There were women prior to that. Things got started but didn't sort of carry through, but for some reason the Victorian Women's Football League was able to sort of carry through, and similar things happened obviously in WA and and South Australia and some really wonderful people that, you know, that gifted me a league because they worked really hard and and they had to face enormous social challenges. They brought such social courage to do that at that time and in the 80s it was very difficult. So I'm very cognizant of their contribution and I'm very appreciative of, of what they gifted me and gave me a space and a platform for me to then contribute to. But yeah, there, was, there essentially was a, a female development manager in every state of Australia in the end. And prior to me being at AFL Victoria, Nicole Graves, who's a very well-known personality in the Victorian women's circle, she she was involved in Carlton at the AFLW for a little bit. She's done a fair bit of coaching in WA, is now in Queensland. So she was in that role for two years before me and established the two youth girls competitions and sort of said to me, I think I've done everything I can do in the role. I was retiring from state football. I was sort of thinking about a different career outside of teaching she said, I think, I think you can do take it to the next level and take those next steps. So I think we all, we've all, those people that have had a role of, you know, an official role of some sort, I think we all aimed to open the door that was in front of us and really work hard to make that happen. Just had this really strong connection. And I, and I, I can do this with everything I do, I guess, is what is the big picture vision? What's the ultimate mountain that we can climb? And then balance that with what's the first step that I need to take to get there. And I, and I, I feel like I'm, I'm pretty good at balancing both. And I, I think some people are very visionary, but don't know how to get there, don't know how to lead people there, or don't know how to take action to get there. Or some people are very good in the detail in here and now. And I think I'm just quite lucky that I've got a bit of both. But there were very, there are some wonderful people along the way. Libby Sadler in New South Wales, who came in there in 2011, did amazing work in, in New South Wales to sort of structure up football in that state. And that's critically important because such little, um, you know, natural AFL talent because of, I guess, the, the sporting history of the, of the state. And Jan Cooper in WA was really significant. Alison Moore, Emma Gibson, who started off in a, as a sports ready trainee in South Australia, who did amazing work there. Julia Price obviously converted, finished her cricket career and came into footy and, and did phenomenal stuff in Queensland. And Queensland is such a as a non-traditional state, being such a powerhouse. The fact that the Brisbane Lions are doing what they're doing and Gold Coast is able to do, you know, is able to be in that space as well. It comes off the back of the work that and the vision that Julia had at the time. She's now in the women's cricket team. So she's a she's a really good developmental leader, you know, sport development leader. And so and then of course Jan Cooper was in the national role. So those we were all um, part of it. We sort of had a female development committee that would come together every 12 months and we would do that brought together by different leaders at different times within the AFL and I think that was really around just driving female strategy. I don't think the AFL really knew what they wanted to do with female football. Women's the National League was never on the cards. They brought us together, together every 12 months to sort of to nut out some kind of strategy and, I, and, and it was very slow and it wasn't very aspirational and and very inspiring outside of what we brought to it. It's not like, you know, our bosses are all going, okay, we want you to lead the sport to here 
was us going, hey, we want you to come over here um, with us. So, yeah, probably the I guess the three things we really had to do was one was the, probably what was really important is we had to speak the language of the people that we're trying to convince and sport by men, for men, to the needs of men, so really hyper-masculine in aspiration and style in philosophy and leadership and in terms of success indicators and things that were important to them. So we had to sort of speak their language and, and build mass participation at a grassroots level so we could demonstrate to them that there was a, a demand for the women's game and, and that, yeah, that they could win with women's football, with female football, because you've got to be a winner, of course. Yeah. We had to also invest in the talent space, so we've built an under-18 high-performance program, obviously the TAC Cup slash NAB League now, an academy program that most of the kids in the AFLW from Victoria have gone through so that, yeah, that we could demonstrate that the girls could, in fact, play like boys. Unfortunately, we had to achieve that masculine def- definition of success. And then the third thing is we had to tell our own story. Uh, people wouldn't really tell our story in a way that, was consistent or, or with our experiences and weren't very celebratory. So we, um, yeah, we put all the girls on Twitter and taught them how to use it, how to control their own narrative, and and as you probably know, they're very good at at telling the AFLW story through social media. So yeah, we we sort of empowered them to use the spaces that they had control over to make sure that the stories we told about what we did um, and who we were and what we were about, we had great integrity and we had great aspiration that there are our words that weren't treated as a novel. Essentially, kind of strategically, that's what we did. And how we applied ourselves to those three things was through sheer determination, perseverance, mm-hmm. will, heartache at times, heartbreak sometimes, and just celebrating all the wins along the way, even the smallest thing. A, you know, getting an extra amount of money in our budget was something to jump up and down about. Being able to play on a certain ground at times or you know, getting a certain person to come into the rooms to address the players. Some of those things were massive. And now you go, oh, really? You celebrated that? And absolutely. And those were the things that sustained you. They were the crumbs that sustained you between moments. I did wonder if there was ever a time, you know, when you and it sounds like your army or group of women who are very similar to you when you're, you know, pioneering for women's footy where you ever thought, oh, we're not getting there or, you know, do you know what it's, this is just, there's too many challenges. We don't have the support that we need. And then how'd you turn it around? How did you kind of keep going through those times where you thought everyone just keeps putting up barriers and these hurdles that we actually can't even jump? Yeah, I think the biggest challenge was internally within the AFL, the senior key decision makers. Um, And this is the message, and it's not to whack those people, but it's to be able to say to sport administrators, sport leaders, where are your blinkers? Where are your blind spots? What do you not see because of how your life has been, the journey that you've experienced? If all you, if you, if if you've ever only ever known boys playing football, men in football, you went to an all boys school, you've only ever had male teachers. Like, how have you learned? How have you learned to value or really understand the value of women and girls in the world if you've never really been exposed to them, and particularly in the sporting landscape? And land, how do you learn that? So. We had to be really strategic about how we engaged with them and we had to really understand what was what were the drivers for them, what were the motivators for them, what were the what were their KPIs, what was important to them, what was going to help them get to where they wanted to go. How could we demonstrate to them that they could take their next steps using the platform of women's football or female football to get there? So, yeah, hitting massive participation targets. You know, and then telling that story up internally. You know, we had to. You know, when you manage up, you got to tell your own story up the chain. Yeah. Um, 
and say, hey, do you see here record growth? I know we're coming from a small base, but if you had an emerging part of a business that you were growing that was growing at 30% every year, year in, year out, would you invest in it or would you ignore it? Absolutely invest in it because it's an emerging part of your business that could turn into the next big thing for you. So we continually made sure we reported up the chain. We made sure that the product was exceptional. So hence, you know, I was setting up that high-performance program. I started off with, you know, 20 kids. We had um, 20 kids that I sort of cobbled together and almost begged to come to Essendon and sort of tried to develop a partnership with the Essendon Footy Club. Um, Angus Monfries was our player ambassador and Chelsea Chelsea Roffey, I should say, uh, was an umpire ambassador because we had an umpiring component to it as well. And there wasn't any under-18 high-performance football being done. So this is off the back of a, a state team that I put together to play a two-match series against Queensland in 2007 with Julia Price. Following year, I brought those kids home and said, right, we're going to run an academy. And we're going to just train once a month and we're going to do on and off-field development because you're more than football, you're a whole person and we're going to give you – we want a, we want football to be a point of difference. You go to basketball, rep training, it's all about making you an Olympic basketballer. I want football – be amazing amazing girls um i couldn't give a stuff how well you play football but if we make you a great person you're probably going to be a great footballer as well and you'll get there so yeah laura kane who's heading up north melbourne's um footy ops she was one of those academy kids cara Donellan slash cara antonio she was one of those kids that came out of that academy program and alicia reva was that one of our player ambassadors as well? Well, she was in the program, but, you know, she was involved in the, I guess, in the media photo shoot and stuff that we did to promote the academy at, at Essendon. So she was one of our first kids. So we sort of just gave birth to a new way of of creating footballers. It's not rocket science. The boys have been doing it for forever. You just invest in them, give them a platform and invest and make sure they've got access to quality coaching and the like and we'll get there. And slowly but surely, you know, we, we found more kids and, and we got more interest and we got greater investment, made a case for greater investment, the girls played better football. And then we strategically made sure that some of those decision makers started to get eyes on how well these girls were playing and also made a case for what we were losing and using things like the Matildas, you know, Erin Phillips, we spoke very often about Erin yeah. Phillips' journey and the fact that, you know, here she is, the daughter of a, a football legend, the child of a football legend, but we did nothing when she turned 13 and we said, see you later, have a great life. If her name was Eric Phillips yeah. and she was considering basketball or football, we've seen what football does to try and keep people in the game and we would have thrown everything at her to keep her in the game and and, and we just let her go off to America and become an amazing world champion basketball. <laughs> But, you know, I think the irony in that is she never started, she never really found basketball until football said, no, nah, we don't want you anymore because you're mm. a girl. Madness, madness. Yeah. So we used, we used some of those narratives and found some really good allies internally as well. There's some very good men in that journey that became great role models and allies internally. And I think sometimes you had to accept that as a woman, you weren't the right person to deliver that message. And sometimes you had to find you know, great male allies who could communicate your message to the right people who had cut through and were a trusted person in the industry to be able to advocate for women's needs in the sport. So I think what we did was we surrounded the people that weren't open to it. We surrounded them with lots of people that were really aspiring um, for it. And um, in the end, they had nowhere else to go. They had no no outs in the end. There's so many good things that you've said in there and you know just the last one you said really sort of resonated a little bit in terms of how much you guys obviously took the higher road I can imagine that would have been so frustrating to you know you you've got the right message you've got the expertise but you couldn't necessarily cut through with some of the right people but instead of just giving up or being frustrated and throwing your hands up in the air you said okay there's another way 
to go about this, which is excellent advice for, you know, people who might be starting their career in sport. Yeah, I don't think I always got it right. I think I blew up a lot of relationships. I think I made a lot of mistakes. I think I threw just sheer – and I probably one of the best – probably the best manager I ever had in football was a gentleman called Grant Williams. He heads up – I think he's heading up the talent program now at the AFL and he was absolutely outstanding. And he once said to me, he goes, hey, Shiloh, you got – Two minutes, and if you if you asked two minutes, you knew you were in there for half an hour. Um, and he said, you know, he said, you know, and then I'd been in the role for maybe seven years at this point, maybe six years. And he said, you know what? So when you first came in here, you were in a jungle, and you had to use your machete to just hack away to try and create a clearing. And you're in the jungle on your own, trying to just craft something. And he said, you've done that, and you've been able to entice some people to come out. And he said. And now there are some people in the clearing with you. He said, but you're still swinging your machete and we just need you to put it down. He said, now's the time. I want you to focus on how you do what you do, not just what you're trying to what you're trying to deliver. And it was a really good lesson uh, for me to be strategic about managing relationships and, and thinking of diverse ways to try and hit goals, I guess. You don't always have to go straight down the corridor, you know, point, you know, the quickest route isn't often the quickest route. In fact, it could be, uh, long term, it could be the more damaging route. So, yeah, I had to learn a lot of a lot of a lot of things around how you work with people and through relationships to get outcomes. And and I don't think I was always great at that at times. I don't think I had a lot of role modelling for that around that growing up. And so I had to really learn that stuff on on my journey. And and I think that's been some of the wonderful things I've, I've gotten from working in sport administration and sports management. Is there are lots of different people who've got different styles of getting. Their, of achieving their goals and, and their targets. And, yeah, I've learned from alongside some really wonderful people who've been great managers and I've learned from some really ordinary managers and I've seen some really ordinary things. But I think the important thing is just that what I've learned along the way is a lot of empathy. I've got a daughter, I've got a son, I've got a mom, a sister, some people it'll be, this is my journey. For other people it's like, I want to make money. How can I make – I can make – I can get a bigger salary if I get more women in, in sport. Okay, great. If I hit greater targets or – I'll get a bigger marketing bonus if I get women's sport funded. You know, like people are different motivators. And I think what's important is that we listen to each other and we sit there and understand their hopes and dreams and aspirations and then strategically think about, well, what are my hopes and dreams and aspirations and theirs? And then how can I align the two and see where that Venn diagram overlaps? Or how can I how can I how can I spin what I'm trying to achieve so that they think that they're achieving the same thing for themselves as well. And I think the other one is reward and recognition, celebrating people for having courage to do something that might be outside their comfort zone. So really saying, I see what you just did and I appreciate that and thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely. I like, I think as sports administrators, like 95% of what we do is all about how we manage different relationships. And like you said, it was definitely something that you had to learn and it's really good advice for people that are just getting started in the industry is, you know, you, you do have to take the time to actually learn and get to know the people you're working with really well and, and how you can all, both get value out of the relationship and, and move in the right direction. We hope that you're enjoying our episode with Shiloh. Shiloh had so much to share that we decided to split it into two episodes. Next week, Shiloh shares the work that she's doing within Golf Australia, her passion for transformational change and gender equality. She gives us some advice for women on setting aspirations and non-negotiables when looking for jobs, as well as building women's participation and her passion for developing women. Make sure you tune in next week to hear us chat to Shiloh some more. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Sports Intuition Podcast. If you did, we would greatly appreciate you taking the time to leave us a rating and any reviews. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss our next episode.